welcome back along to this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella, and I'm so thankful that you found your way back to us. On today's episode, I'm going to be launching a new series dealing with objections that try to present God as a moral monster. Richard Dawkins wrote in his book, The God Delusion, quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, blood-thirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. End quote. Quite a screed against the God of the Bible. But is his description that far off? Many atheists and anti-theists alike don't think so, even going so far as to say that if God could be shown to exist, they still wouldn't worship such an evil being. So, what of Dawkins' objections? I mean, doesn't God command the genocidal extermination and ethnic cleansing of the Canaanites? Come on, isn't he petty and insecure for demanding that we praise him? How can we call him forgiving if he kills people for lying about if they sold part of a field or a whole field? And doesn't his law allow us to beat a slave to within an inch of their life with no repercussions? Well, let's find out in this series that asks the question, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is the Freed Thinker Podcast. He knows there's no end to his suffering, and that is suffering itself. Just to know that there will never be a time when hell will turn him loose. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, and the thousands of piles of sulfur, and the burnt buildings, and the burnt sepinks, and the burnt cigarette confirm that, yes they were. He is in a horrible place. Horror like horror has never been known. Let the horror of knowing that you're going to burn forever flood through your soul. I mean, they're just, they're animals. And it's funny because sometimes these sodomite activists, these queer activists, will sometimes say things like, oh, but you know, it's natural, Pastor Anderson, because the animals do it. And I always say this, well, you know, I've always said that you guys were animals, so, you know, you're just proving my point right now. Let the horror to know that you're in a dark pit and you'll never have relief from that. That is hell enough for you and hell enough for anyone. In Genesis 18, the Lord comes to meet with Abraham and tells him of his plans to judge the wicked cities of the plain. Often we think of only Sodom and Gomorrah, but in fact, there were several city-states in the plains that were, at that time, wicked and cruel. Abraham is told that the outcry against the people of the plain had become great, that they were violent, oppressive, cruel, perverse, and engaged in all manner of idolatry, including continual human sacrifices. Abraham, undoubtedly concerned about his nephew Lot, who went to live in those very cities, then begins to plead for the safety of the cities, and he says something striking. He asks if God will sweep away the righteous with the wicked when he judges the cities. 
How will God discriminate between those who are wicked and those who are not? The text tells us, starting in verse 23, quote, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? End quote. Abraham then negotiates God down to just ten people in all the plains before God leaves to go down to the cities. Now what is striking is Abraham's question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is the question that confronts us in this new series. Now, it's commonplace in these debates between unbelievers and Christians for the so-called atrocities of the Old Testament to be launched against the stronghold of faith, like that of the destruction of the cities of the plain. It's not long into these discussions, especially when the topic is that of morality and the kind of justificatory preconditions needed for morality to exist at all, that God will be portrayed as a moral monster, a divine tyrant, or, as Dawkins called him, a cosmic bully. And the claim be made that the Bible cannot serve as an adequate foundation for an objective moral code because within its pages one can find passages that condone slavery or rape, genocide, and chauvinistic patriarchy, or so the argument goes. In this new series, I'm going to be addressing the so-called atrocities of the Bible that are commonplace in the assault against historic and orthodox Christian belief. We will look at issues like the destruction of the world in a global flood, God's command to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the driving out and possible genocide of the Canaanite nations, the keeping of slaves, the subjugation of women, as well as several others. However, before we get into any specific issue, I want to preface this entire series by first looking at the category of these objections itself. That is, before looking at, say, slavery or the subjugation of women, I want to look at the assumptions and structure of any objection that attempts to draw a straight line from a command or an event described in the Bible to the conclusion that either the Bible commands something unethical or that it somehow shows that God cannot exist or at least that the notion of an all-good, all-loving, omnibenevolent God cannot exist or at least that such an all-good God cannot be the inspiration of such commands or actions. This episode will largely be drawn from an article that I posted entitled, Shall Not the Judge of All the Earth Do as Just?, which you can find in the blog. Now, without delving into the merits or viability of the diverse interpretations of the biblical laws and narratives, we'll get to that as they come up on the issues themselves, I want to instead analyze the form of the arguments that commonly are made. I've been increasingly aware of the diminished view of God in the West, even in the church, and how that diminished view impacts not only the unbelieving community, but the Christian community as well. There was a time that God was viewed as so holy, just, and righteous 
that to even use his name improperly was not just a social taboo, but a detestable sin. There used to be anti-blasphemy laws, and even critics of Christianity were often, quote, Christian critics, end quote, and that they were still quite Christian in their views on things like honor and shame, piety and authority. However, ever since the Enlightenment, and in large part since the Renaissance, it has become almost commonplace, even among believers, to view God as almost like a bigger, stronger version of us. That is, we have become pagan in our view of the divine. For more on this concept of, of a pagan view, you can see my previous uh, episode on pagan Pelagianism. We're told to make no image of God in the Bible, but we are now in a place where a box office hit like Bruce Almighty portrays God, as played by Morgan Freeman, as a kind, albeit passive, sage-like wise man, more holy man than omnipotent creator. Family Guy is a hit show across nearly all demographics, evangelicals included, and what often makes us balk at one of the episodes is not that it portrays God as an old, white-bearded man with a somewhat skewed moral compass, but rather the kind of off-color sexual or violence-based humor that is used. What makes us cringe, but not look away, is not the irreverent and sacrilegious material, but the culturally taboo aspects of the episodes. Thus, the problem is that it is culturally irreverent and sacrilegious, not religiously so. It pushes the envelope on our late modern American sensibilities of sex and gender, which seem to not include religious piety, even among the conservatives. What we see is that in the West, there is an entirely diminished theological view of God, if we even think about God at all, even among those who claim to base their lives on the Bible. God, for most Americans, is something much more like Morgan Freeman and Bruce Almighty than like Yahweh. If he exists, he is an entirely genteel, pedestrian, and just wants us to be good and healthy, but, like a good neighbor, just smiles at us in the morning and reminds us to have a good day. We barely even notice him in the rearview mirror. He wants us to be nice to our neighbors, so long as it doesn't cost us anything of value or inconvenience us. His demands are actually platitudes that sound an awful lot like what we would want for ourselves in our most self-important moments. God helps us out every now and then when we need a job or to get home safely, but largely we're on our own. Even Christians have largely lost the exalted view of God as holy and righteous, if they even know what those terms mean at all, I'm not really sure those words would be readily understood by the average churchgoer these days. We no longer live in a culture of monarchs and princes. Rather, we want a God who is more like a president, one who is down to earth and a lot like us who had to work to get the job, a God who is relatable, palatable, and definable. We are egalitarian through and through and reject any idea of subservience to a higher power unless it makes us better off and does not demand too much of us. 
So naturally, we imagine that God must be like us. In order for us to think that God is good, his morals must be like our morals and his ways like our ways. He must be kind and unimposing. He must think like us, believe like us, love like us, and act like us. Or else, he's not only foreign to us, but inferior as well. We have no idea what Isaiah could have meant when he wrote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8-9 Isaiah's words should be shattering to us. Isaiah is here telling us the obvious yet scandalous truth that God is simply not like us. His ways are not our ways. He does not think like us. He is not like us. Now, I can sympathize with the sentiment that God is one of us because of the Incarnation, such that Jesus became like us. It seems that the diminished view of God running rampant in the West is incarnational theology gone horribly awry. I should also note at this point that I'm not trying to here argue that God does, in fact, exist, or that he is, in essence, holy, righteous, and worthy of praise and adoration, though I think all those are true, and unimaginably greatly so. I am simply describing the predominant theological milieu in the West in which these debates occur. It is in this context that this entire series on the atrocities of the Bible will find itself situated. When the unbeliever challenges the Christian about the morality of God in the Bible, often the kind of responses given by Christians are to give justifications for why what God did in the Old Testament are actually in line with our current moral beliefs and should not be seen as immoral. That is, they attempt to make God and the Bible more palatable to modern skeptics by trying to tame God and cut him down to size, rather than call us to confess and believe that we are not the arbiters of what is virtuous. These well-meaning Christians try to make God virtuous on our terms, rather than holy and just by his own nature. To that extent, the unbeliever and the believer seem to be playing on the same field. They both seem to agree that God is subservient to the modern moral sentiment in the same way that we as humans are. God is to conform to our image and likeness, not us to his. It is this arena of discourse that I would like to challenge in this episode. Now, it is my contention that believers often do a disservice to themselves by agreeing to play by those rules in the first place. When we attempt to defend God as moral, just like us, we may have good intentions, but we are actually capitulating to a weaker concept of God than what is found in the Bible. To put it bluntly, we have lost the battle before a single shot is fired because we simply passively accept a kind of post-enlightenment humanistic slant on what a god must be like. It is presuppositionalism in reverse. Once we realize this, 
we can see that the demand of the unbeliever to us for us to defend God from their fiery moral indignation is an unfounded criteria based on straw man concepts that we should not feel compelled to respond to, at least not according to their terms. It is simply not the case that God must be moral like we are moral. Not because God is above the law, so to speak, like some kind of tyrannical and brutish despot, but because God is categorically not like us. God is categorically different. God is not just a different kind of human or a different human, like a human on a different plane. God is not a created being bound to the law of some creator. God is the ultimate ground of being and is so holy that we strain to comprehend him and his righteousness. As Christians, we struggle to defend God because the concept of God we're defending is, in effect, indefensible. Not because, the, that, not because God is actually indefensible, but rather that the washed out and cheapened concept of a God that is a being a lot like us is an indefensible idol. One simply needs to read Job or the prophets to understand what it means for the Lord to be a holy and all-consuming fire. The reason why we have a hard time understanding the severity of some of the punishments or the commands in the Old Testament is not because our moral virtues are so high and lofty, but rather because we do not think sin is really all that severe. And we do not think that sin is all that severe because we do not think God is really all that holy or humanity really all that bad, especially when it comes to ourselves. Both are basically good. We place man higher than the Bible places him with regard to rectitude and God far lower than the heavens are from the earth. We do not understand the gravity of sin because we do not think God is really all that great. We think that lying to our friends is no worse or even really all that different than lying to God. That is because we think our friends, that's not because we think our friends are perfect and righteous, but rather because we do not really believe that God is either. So it's like playing on the field that these debates are played and lost. Let us consider the following two categories of biblical teaching and narrative. The biblical teaching is kind of a theological background. Their theological background beliefs such as God is omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, holy, righteous, perfect, immutable, jealous, and the creator and judge of all the earth. And that humanity is created by God in God's image but, due to sin, have fallen away from God and are deserving of the due penalty to sin, which is the wrath of God and death. Now, these theological backgrounds underpin the other category, which is the category of narratives. And it's in the narratives that we find the objections, such as God commanding the conquest of the nations of Canaan, God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God destroying the world in the deluge. These theological backgrounds underpin how we're to understand these narratives. Now, I chose some relatively simple concepts that are replete throughout the Bible, and so 
hopefully will not be widely contested as biblical concepts. It seems that in order for the unbeliever's objection to go forward, they must be over-selective on which aspects of the biblical concept of God, humanity, and sin that are permitted to enter into the discussion. This over-selection, where major concepts are left out or just ignored altogether, constitutes a lesser vision of God than that of the biblical writers as we have discussed above. <clears throat> this means that when the unbeliever asks the Christian why God would command genocide, they are poisoning the well, so to speak. Because we as humans recognize that mass slaughter of our fellow humans is a grave moral evil, the challenge is posed with the assumption that if God were to do it, he would be evil like the mass murderers of our recent past. The main problem with the question is that God is not like us, and we are not like God. Now, here I'm not defending that God has in fact ordered genocide. We will see in episodes to come that I think nothing of the sort. What I mean here is rather that the question is very much like the question, have you stopped beating your wife? The question itself presumes guilt. And so we must examine the question. I used to give the example of the difference between a private citizen and a judge with regard to a crime such that we recognize that a judge has a certain authority to pronounce and execute sentencing and justice against a criminal that a private citizen simply doesn't have. For example, a private citizen cannot take a criminal and lock him away in a cellar for the rest of his natural life, whereas a judge has the authority to pronounce a criminal guilty and sentence him to life in prison. The right to judge a criminal is simply categorically different between a private citizen and a duly appointed judge. I used to think that this was an apt illustration of the difference between humans and God. I've recently come to think that while it's helpful as an illustration so far as it goes, it's not completely accurate. This is not because God is more like us than a human judge is like a human civilian, but because the distance between us and God is greater than the distance between a private citizen and a judge. A human judge, at the end of the day, is still, well, human. While he has certain rights vested to him by the state to execute justice, he also has certain moral obligations that he must, in good conscience, adhere to. This seems to me where God is not only categorically different from us in the sense that God is the judge of the earth and we are not, but also in the sense that God is not bound to a standard exterior to himself, whereas we as humans are. God is not vested with authority to judge. He is, by nature, the rightful judge of humanity, and we are not. We have, in our common nomenclature, sayings like, to play God. These were brought into our everyday language for a reason. Long ago, we recognized that God was the author and giver of life, and that it was only by his good pleasure that we came to be and continue to live. God, quite literally, had the right to take life when he saw fit for his good purposes and to execute justice against evil and sin, which 
affects all of us. God gives life, and God takes it away, and we only subsist in between because of God's good graces. For if at midnight tonight God chose to judge us according to what our sins actually deserved, no one would make it to 1201. The saying, however, hardly makes sense to modern Westerners anymore, because we've become so autonomous that even Christians do not really believe that God would be moral if he judged us for sin. No. We think that we can just come as we are and stay as we are, and that God just loves us like a senile old grandfather who thinks his grandchildren are so cute and can do no wrong. The common Western Christian, whether they know it or not, who believes that God will not judge sin is like the wicked man in Psalm 10 who says to God, quote, You will not call to account. End quote. One simply needs to read Lamentations to understand that God takes sin a lot more seriously than we do. Now, at this point, the unbeliever will surely protest that I'm simply begging the question not only of God's existence, but also of his holy nature and our sinful condition before a just throne. Well, I actually concede the point. I am doing that. Yet it seems to me that I'm permitted to do so by the nature of the unbeliever's objection. This is now where I have been saying uh, so far comes to full bloom. The objection of the unbeliever that God is a moral monster in the Old Testament is actually an arguendo, which is the Latin term for what is commonly an argument that takes the form, quote, for the sake of argument, let us assume that X is true, end quote. In order for the argument to work, the unbeliever must assume the existence of God and the accuracy of the biblical text, even if they are not aware that this is what they are in fact doing. The argument is, whether they like it or not, if God exists, or assuming that God exists, or for the sake of argument, let us assume that God exists, and if the stories in the Bible are accurate, or for the sake of argument, let us assume that the, Bi the stories in the Bible are accurate, then we can examine the morality of it all and conclude that God acted wickedly or plausibly does not exist, or whatever conclusion they are seeking to draw. It is precisely here that the Christian is then allowed to assume everything that is entailed within the Bible and Christian theology. In order for the unbeliever's argument to work, it must be successful as an argument for an internal inconsistency within the Bible and the Christian theological system as a whole. It is an attempt to show that God cannot be viewed as moral and benevolent, while at the same time being vicious and violent and genocidal, for example. The unbeliever wants us to conclude that the Bible admonishes wicked actions, and therefore the God of the Bible would be evil if he existed, and so we should reject both. So it is specifically here that the argument fails, because it simply does not allow everything that the Bible teaches on the subject, or that is held by Christian theology. It selects a very narrow, slim sliver of the concept of God in the Bible, and thus is, if it is successful at all, only a refutation of a lesser concept of God. 
When the full weight of the scriptures comes to bear on the issue, the problem simply evaporates because the lesser concept of God is plainly not the biblical concept of God. We can respond by saying, if God exists as described in the Bible, i.e. holy, righteous, omniscient, creator, and judge, etc., and if humanity is as sinful and wicked as described in the Bible, and if the wages of sin and death uh, the wages of sin is death as described in the Bible, then God acting in judgment against a wicked and evil people is not itself evil or morally reprehensible. It is the actions of the judge of creation meeting out justice against sin as a holy God should. It is in this regard that I often point out the inconsistency of the arguments like those put forward by anti-theists like the late Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens would often say that God was evil for judging the Canaanites, but then turn around and say that God is evil for not intervening to stop the Nazis in the Holocaust. This position states that God was evil for judging a wicked nation and was evil for not judging a wicked nation. Besides the problem of ignoring the historic Christian position that Christ is present in all human suffering and oppression, and thus was actually present and active in judging the Holocaust. This objection by Hitchin reveals not only an inconsistent standard, where God is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, but also that Hitchens is working on a diminished view of God, something that should not surprise us since he quite literally was a God despiser. He loathed the concept of God, so why should we think that he would want to interact with an exalted concept of God as holy, righteous, and pure, and humanity as sinful and wicked. Now, at this point, the unbeliever may jump in again and double back and say something like, well, you still haven't shown that God exists in the first place. Well, that's all fine and true. I have it. Yet at that point, he cannot then help himself to the conclusion of his objection that the God of the Bible is a moral monster as evidence against the existence of God, because once we allow the full weight of the scriptures to come to bear on the question of whether or not God is a moral monster, that diminished view of God that it relies on is simply not tenable. While it's not my intention in this series to prove that the Bible is the revealed and inspired scriptures, or, uh, or that God exists and has acted in human history, I think what has been shown so far is that in order for the moral monster argument to go through, the unbeliever must be lulled into, I'm sorry, the believer must be lulled into accepting and operating with the low and diminished view of the unbeliever rather than the high and exalted view of God as holy creator and judge as found in the Bible. We should not be afraid to stand our ground and refuse to play on that turf in order to win a battle that can never be won if we have already sacrificed the biblical view of God before we even start. The day after God destroyed the cities of the plain, Abraham rushed down to the cliff where he had negotiated with God and he saw the answer to his question. He may not have known at the time that God had spared Lot and his daughters, but he did see that God had condemned the wicked of the plains. What we do not see is Abraham questioning if God was cruel 
or evil for judging sin. Rather, what Abraham saw was that there was not ten righteous people in all the plain, in all the cities. His question was not if God was holy. It was if humanity was righteous. We must come to a place where we understand that God is the judge of all the earth and is holy, and that we are creatures who are created in his image and yet sin against the image and live on borrowed time and in radical need of grace. The unbeliever may not believe this, but we should not be willing to allow a diminished view of God to filter into and dilute our theology. The God of the atheist is a moral monster. That diminished and vapid concept of a God that is just like us, who cannot judge us, and who has no claim on us, really is indefensible. We stand shoulder to shoulder with the unbeliever in rejecting that pagan notion of a God. I am an unbeliever in that God. Thankfully, the holy God who has revealed himself in the Bible is not that God. The unbeliever may not believe that such a being exists. He may hate him and kick against the pricks. But once we allow all of what the Bible tells us about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity, there is no internal contradiction between God being all good and God commanding what he wills in the scriptures. Thank you again for joining me here on the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, if you'd like to contact me with your questions, comments, commendations, or condemnations of my show, you can email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit my blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or visit the Facebook page. Next time, we will continue this series by asking the question, how can God be good if he condoned the possession and brutal treatment of slaves? Until then, have a good night and Godspeed.